From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. Professor John Kaminsky is associate head of the Department of Plant Sciences at Penn State University and director of the Golf Turf Management Program. John was a professor at UConn after completing his degree with Peter Noten at the University of Maryland. John has been a pioneer in the use of social media, blogging, and web-based content as a means of disseminating information, and also has had a prolific career as a researcher with dozens of refereed publications, and of course, the latest edition of Turfgrass Management that he did with Emeritus Professor Al Turgeon. Before we get to my conversation with John, and since it's winter weather conditions, it's time for many to be thinking microdochium patch control and the industry standard Civitas Turf Defense. Civitas Turf Defense from Intelligro, combined with phosphites, have become the industry standard for control, especially for those seeking more organic programs less reliant on traditional chemistry. Learn more about Civitas Turf Defense, available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada, and pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations, or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. Welcome, John. Appreciate you taking the time, especially in between presentations there for the Connecticut superintendents. Listen, this has been a long time coming for me to want to spend some time chatting with you. And I want to start out uh, recalling a conversation I think we had over a beer in an airport someplace. We were both stranded a long time ago. And you told me about growing up in the sheet music business. Well, my dad was a wholesale record distributor, right? Ah. So he, he sold records back when you could go into Kent Mill or whatever the place was and buy an album. So that's what he did. And then Napster basically <laughs> made those businesses obsolete. And then he transitioned. He had a record label. So you got a chance to work with him in the vinyl business early on. Literally, when I was a little kid, I would like skateboard through the, the record store and the, and the warehouse. And then as I got older, I would, you know, help by pulling orders for people and get into the business. But yeah, it was interesting to see music change from albums of Prince to Michael Jackson to the Backstreet Boys as you grow up. So yeah, pretty interesting. Well, vinyl's making a comeback. I know. It's awesome. I even, I had a, I think I have a record player still. We moved to a real small place, so I don't know where I would have kept it. But I had tons of records from him and growing up, and I sold all of them when I moved to State College. It's about 50 picture discs that were like Beatles, unopened picture discs, like all these nice Elvis and, and things. So I still have those, but everything else is gone now. Oh, man. Yeah, because, you know, my kids now are finding my old vinyl from college, and I spend, I spend uh, records as a DJ on the radio and also at events every once in a while. So I didn't recall it specifically, but I knew it was in the music business. So now, you know, you grow up there and you start playing golf and you want to be an architect. Yeah, that's true. I was in the drawing in, in high school, and I didn't pick up golf until probably middle school, but I started getting, you know, decent. Not McGraw-level decent, but decent. <laughs> you mean and, McGraw's uh, kid decent. No, I mean, that's a different level of decent. His kid kicks my butt every time we play, so I, I have to compare myself to McGraw because once in a while I might be able to beat him. But yeah, I ended up getting into golf, and that was what drove me. And then I was into landscaping and drawing and stuff, and I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll go to landscape architecture and become a golf course architect. And it didn't ultimately work out that direction. But I did get a degree in turf and landscape contracting. I ended up getting both those degrees, but fell in love with turf. Just ended up saying, you know what, it's the turf side of this I like and not necessarily the architecture. Which in 1998, when I graduated from Penn State, it's probably a good time to not be trying to become a golf course architect. That's exactly right. But somehow you got shipped out to Desert Mountain. 
and Sean Emerson. Uh, yeah, Sean wasn't there at the time, but basically I was at Penn State, and you know, you, as most students do, you go through highs and lows. I was a pretty crappy student at the start, and then I became a pretty decent student, but I kind of burnt myself out, and I just said, I'm taking a semester off from school. I'm just going to get out of here. My parents freaked out. Dan Stearns, who was my advisor here, he recently passed away, but he said, let me handle it. And he, he contacted my parents and said, we'll register him for a credit and make sure that he still has ties to the university. And then if he goes out there, it'll be a good thing. He can kind of you know get his feet wet, see what it's like on the golf course, and he's into architecture. I drove down to Ponte Vedra Beach and Sawgrass. My aunt lives at the country club and stayed there, played some golf, and then I drove straight through to Arizona from there. And started like a couple of days later. I think I started on my birthday in like early February. And so I love it. I just, uh, it was just fun being on the golf course. And it was the first time I had been on a golf course in terms of working on the maintenance. They're all like, who's this cocky Penn Stater coming in here in his, <laughs> his golf shirt and his khakis to throw me to the fire? They put me in a ditch to like dig up some irrigation or lay some sod. And I, I just loved it. I thought it was the greatest thing. And so I got along with everybody out there. And yeah, I spent six months out there before then ultimately decided to go back to school. And then somehow wound up in my old pal Peter Noden's lap. And it's funny, when I look at his career as a pathologist and a quasi-weed scientist, I sniff the same sort of pedigree with you. You've done a fair amount of pathology uh, and weed science as well. Pete had a big impact on you. A huge impact. I mean, it it was like one of those things where you could basically do anything you want, right? Like, you want to work on annual bluegrass? Go ahead. You want to work on a disease? Actually, when I went there, I was going to be the POA guy. Like, that was my project was going to be POA. But, you know, the Bankrest dead spot pathogen, it literally showed up in our lab my second day on the job. And so that one shift changed everything for my career. I mean, I, I ended up focusing on the pathology side of things and yeah, now I still dabble in the weed science stuff, but pathology's still my my baby. So now, you know, with a short stint in Connecticut, a productive stint in Connecticut, you come back and you take over the program at your alma mater, fill in some big-ass shoes. I knew both Joe and George. There was an interim period there of, you know, sort of figuring out what they wanted to do. And then they got you. What's it like sitting in that chair after those two guys? It's pretty interesting, actually, because, you know, one of the things that I do is visit all the students on their internships. And you get to meet the Joe Dewich era graduates. Uh And you also get to meet the George Hamilton era graduates. And they are all so passionate and loyal about their advisor. And I didn't really dawn on me because I, you know, I saw this two, three years into the position, but now I'm 14 years into the position and I'm starting to see that I have my group, the people that went through my program that they're becoming superintendents. And so it's fun. I don't know if you'll ever feel Dewish's shoes or even Hamilton's shoes, but I do see that loyalty to Penn State, but also kind of that connection and bond to whoever was your advisor and your mentor. And, and the same way I look at Dernoden and Zontek and some of those people. You know, hopefully someday that's how some of these young students will be thinking of me well, and, and the others at Penn State. I'm sure they will, John. But the more important conversation are the, you know, I, I liken, you know, that loyalty to Penn State like the Cosa Nostra, you know, the five families. You've got the Schaefer family. You've got the Latshaw family, you know, and then you got the younger guys, the Corcoran family, the guy out in Inverness, another, I think he's another Penn Stater, but you, you guys tend to sort of consolidate around each other. And what do you make it at, John? I mean, it's obviously good because it's a strong network, but is there a thread? I mean, are you all pains in the asses? Uh, I didn't, I mean, I knew George was a wonderful guy and, but uh, Joe, uh, you know, only had a few bright spots that I can remember by the time I met him. Uh, What is it with you guys? 
you know, anytime somebody asks me about that and the kind of the Penn State loyalty, I always go back to things that don't relate to turf, right? Like I went to school here and got my degree and I met my wife and she was a communications major and now is a corporate event planner. And she's a bigger blue white bleeder than I am, right? I mean, she actually tames me because she's so into it. But it's like this. You wear a Penn State hat, you wear a Penn State shirt, you get in an airport, you drive around the country, you see people. There's always somewhere somebody's going to be like, we are, right? It's it's this kind of inherent thing about Penn State. And it's not just the turf thing. It's, it's just Penn State. And there's just something about it being here on campus and, the, and, and bleeding that blue and white and wanting to support others that feel that same way. And I don't, I don't know how they've done it. And I, and I give a lot of credit for Dr. Dewich and, and Dr. Musser, you know, you know, really establishing the program and generating this, this whole group of loyal alumni, but it's really a Penn state thing. I mean, they're just, it's such a loyal group. And then I think it extends beyond turf. And when I walk around campus, I just had a Zoom call with somebody that was in, I don't even know what area of campus she was in, but we were introducing ourselves, and I said, oh, I run a turf program at Penn State. She's like, oh, the turf program. She's like, she's like, I don't know anything about it, but I know that we have one of the best in the country. And like, that's the kind of mentality on campus from engineers and communications, people that don't know anything about turf but have heard of us. Um, and I think that's a rarity at most campuses. I don't think that the turf programs have quite the visibility as they do at Penn State. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said. It's not unique to the turf uh, program. It is something wider. And I will say, I was watching the national championship game the other night, and Brian Schwartz uh, was the leading pitcher uh, on one of the ads for the University of Georgia. So I do think, you know, obviously the Tiffin Station and the breeding that's come out of there with Glenn Burton and, and the guys there, and obviously the history at Penn State from a teaching perspective, has had broad impact. And, you know, you guys have taken it on the chin lately. Two two guys that I really liked. I was, I'm always surprised when I like anybody from there. But, you know, the passing of Stanley and Tom uh, right around the same time is a big hit. They both had big impacts on you. Yeah, for me, for sure. I mean, I, I had three primary mentors prior to going into the UConn job. And, and one would be Dernoden and one would be Mr. Latshaw and one would be Tom. And then after I took the job at UConn, Stan really stepped up. I mean, I had met him as a grad student with Dernoden because they were buddies. Mm-hmm. But Stan, like, I think five out of the seven years before he died, we traveled to the UK together. He kind of took me under my wing and, and mentored me. And Tom was the same way. I went from being like, you know, his undergraduate student and worked for his lawn care company in the in the summertime to hanging out and having a glass of wine on the back deck with him and Stan prior to either or both of them passing. So they were big hits. You can't get that kind of bigness easily, you know, from those guys. I think Stan had just this crazy amount of enthusiasm for the industry and really liked to pull the young people along. And Tom was just one of those guys that, you know, would get up and give a, a presentation and it would be an hour long and he'd show three slides and you'd be sitting on the end of your seat waiting for what's coming next. He was just able to deliver on that. And so they're, they're obviously two mentors of mine, but also, you know, missed by lots of people. Yeah, in the industry. for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so you're 15 years into this role and I see you're also the associate head of the department. So can you talk for a little bit about what your role's like these days? <laughs> I wear a lot of hats. Yeah. Right? You ain't kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, my main role here is obviously research. I've got five grad students. And so research is, even though it's only 25% of my my work, it's still a big part of what I do. Um, and then the two-year program and running that, it takes a lot. I, I teach a lot in that, but I also, you know, you run the program. So we're dealing with admissions, mm-hmm. billing, housing, everything. So that takes up a lot of my time. The, the associate head stuff, 
I was really just interested in how the department ran. Our department head is awesome. I've had like five since I've been at Penn State, and she's by far the best head I've had anywhere I've ever been. And I just expressed, I was like, look, if you ever need help, I know that your associate head retired. It's something that I'd be interested in helping with. And she was like, yeah, let's see if we can make it work. And so she mentors and teaches me more than anything. I mean, I try to help out where I can. And there's things that need to get done that she's too busy for. I'll try and step in and and take some of that legwork. But a lot of it was just really trying to understand how it's a multi-billion dollar college. And and the department is one chunk of that. But it's a pretty complicated process, academia, um, as a business. And so I've been interested from learning like that. I have zero interest in doing administrative work, you know, beyond this. But it's been fun. I've learned a lot. and she's been a great mentor. And having that administrative experience, if nothing else, I've developed a little bit of my own on the side. I've avoided large appointments intentionally, but knowing how it works <laughs> helps you to navigate it a little bit easier. And I'm, I really want to take a minute now and go into your research, John. It's been, a, you know, again, just a crazy career of a really intense pathology, you know, finding new diseases and you know, your Pythium work, and then, you know, you're there with the Poecure thing at the beginning. And so I'm wondering, when you look at your research program, is there something in particular that you really would say it centers around? Like, for me, it was always always how to use less of anything. <laughs> you know, I, I, I focused on reducing things. I'm wondering if you had to characterize what your work's uh, focused on. What would you say overall? The thing that I like the most about it has been what you mentioned, which is, um, you know, the association discovering new problems and new diseases. I think with fat collapse and pythium patch now and dead spot back on and working with Frank Wong with, you know, brown ring patch, like that's been fun. It's like discovery. I think probably I don't get credited for it because I do a lot of pesticide work, but I'm along the lines of you. If we can figure out cultural practices or application techniques to make our inputs less, um, you know, that's that's what I probably take the most pride in. But at the same time, I'm like their Noden, you know, he was like, <laughs> you have to be able to give them an answer, right? So it's not, it's not your job to tell them to spray or not to spray. Your job is to tell them how to, you know, make their life easier and get their job done. And at some courses, it means they're proactive and they want to really try to minimize. And at other courses, they just want to dump. And I try to minimize the dumping, right? Like, <laughs> like the, these are the practices we're going to do. These are the, the chemicals we're going to use to help maximize all your input. I don't know. If I looked at my whole program, you know, there's some groups out there, you know, that are really research-based that do a nice job of tackling a problem and solving it from all areas. And there's probably one area that I'm I'm weak at. I kind of tend to bounce around to things that are fun for me at the moment, right. you know, like, like, oh, look, this disease showed up. I'm going to focus a few grad students on that. Oh, POA cures out. Why don't we, why don't we switch our research and start looking down that line? Oh, POA annual, that's what we're going to work on. Let me jump into that for a while. So it's definitely not a cohesive program. It's more what's fun, what's a hot topic, and let me pivot and, and work on that. Yeah, and I and I love that about your work. And I would say the same for mine. And some of it comes from what I know Pete did a lot of, and I bet you you do of by the nature of your work with the two-year program, is I walk on 100 golf courses a year. I get the opportunity. And Pete, you could never get him. Oh, where are you, Pete? Oh, I'm going to a guy. i got to be there by 7. <laughs> I got to be there by six. I got to take a sample, get it back to the lab. I'm like, okay. So how much of being on the golf course has informed your work over the last bunch of years? Yeah, two things probably informed it. One is I visit all my students on their internships, and they often produce a pretty lengthy internship report that includes everything about the golf course. And this includes, you know, from a, a mom-and-pop type golf course all the way up to, you know, the you know, Marion's at Oakmont and 
in Pennsylvania. So visiting them, I get to see things. Uh, reading their reports, I get to see things. And then, you know, running diagnostic labs and doing diagnostics, um, you know, you're really like at the pulse of what's going on in real time in the field. You know, this Pythium patch issue that we, you know, found in 2005 and I'm still working on, dead spot, those are all things that related to samples coming into a diagnostic lab where you're trying to help solve somebody's problem and you just happen to discover something new that hasn't been found before. And that's the fun. I mean, my talk today, this morning for the Connecticut group was, you know, something like along the lines of what it takes to identify or discover a new disease. And and, and just giving the talk, I'm like, wow, there's a lot that went into that that I didn't even think about before I gave this talk. Um, So I think the diagnostic labs and visiting the golf courses definitely have had a huge part in, in building my career. And speaking of many hats, that's a new hat, an expanded diagnostic lab. Yeah, we'll see how this one turns out. I'm, <laughs> everybody says, don't ever start a diagnostic lab. It's a losing Nutrient management of golf turf is always a lively topic of discussion among golf course superintendents. Clipping volume, OM246, MLSN, all are important topics. And when it comes to supplying those nutrients, you want simple, no-nonsense solutions. And that's where the Plant Food Company comes in. Plant Food Company, based in New Jersey, is a family-owned and operated fertilizer company since 1946. The professionals at Plant Food Company strive to provide the latest technology at affordable prices and backs them with their commitment to servicing the industry and golf course superintendents. They've the research to back up their claims and products for all your nutrient management needs. Learn more at plantfoodcompany.com. Everybody says, don't ever start a diagnostic lab. It's a losing venture. But it's one of those things that, you know, I'm probably in the second half of my career, starting the second half of my career right now. And it's the one thing that I've been very involved with forever. And since going back to Dernoden's lab, and we didn't have it formally. We did it a little bit at Penn State. But I finally, you know, it took a year of going through the hoops to get the permits from Penn State to allow us to do it and to be able to charge, which we need to do to cost recover. Right. So we hired somebody. We're training them now. We applied for international permits. So now we can get samples from anywhere in the world. So we're really going full steam ahead to have, you know, a really solid commercial diagnostic lab to turn around answers quickly. Yeah. Back to how I was at Connecticut. I think I did a good job at Connecticut, and I'm just looking to expand that into Penn well, State. In the Northeast. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, I know from the years of working with Buckley at Rutgers, everybody's misery is your joy because, because the, <laughs> yeah. the more miserable, you know, everybody's doing good. It's a good growing season. I talked to my brother, Rich, and he's like, oh, man, there's no samples, you know. It, it is hard. So I think the Plant Diagnostic Lab out in Wisconsin has a subscription service that they use that's a more stable model right, than relying on the misery of others. So I wish you a lot of luck with that, pal. But since we're talking <laughs> yeah, no about kidding. pathology, I want to I just probe you a little bit about your thatch collapse stuff. And more importantly, do you think we're going to be able to commercialize any ligase formulations that we might be able to apply? You got any sniffing of maybe what you found in the formation of that organism, the release of ligase, that maybe we'll be able to commercialize something like that? Where's that at? So we did identify some of the enzymes that are breaking down the lignans, and, and ligase is one of them. I went and looked it up to see, like, you know, how can we patent this? And believe it or not, there was already another university. I think it might be Georgia. I can't remember. But they had a use patent on it already, and they've been working on trying to 
get it together. I just ran in, and I should know the name of the professor, and I, for some reason I'm drawing a blank on who was working on it, but we sent him our most aggressive ice low, which was like from South Dakota, and just ripped through our organic matter quickly. And he even said in that isolate they couldn't get enough of the material out and produce it to make it worthwhile. So they're still working with their original formulations. I think that there's still a good shot that it could come. It's just a matter of cost and development. I mean, it would just be so awesome, though, if we had an enzyme in a jug that you could spray out. And we reduced in six weeks our organic matter by, you know, 21%. Oh. If, if no lab. one's ever like if seen you could this, do that, you would be. Yeah. So my joke today, I talked about it <laughs> that stuff specifically, and I talked about it, and I said, you know, who would be the most interested in this? And everybody sat there like, no, who? And I'm like, Toro, John. I'm like, anybody that makes an air fire, they're just going to buy the patent on it and then just kill it because <laughs> they don't want to lose. They don't want to lose out on being able to, um, you know, sell airification and cultivation equipment. It's if they could figure something out that didn't do it non-uniformly and you could spray it. You know, that would be amazing. It would be such a breakthrough, but I don't know how far off that group is working on it, but um, I hope that it comes out. Well, you know, speaking of products that you played around with a lot at Connecticut and obviously has shown its head with your pythium organism is the chronic use of phosphites, right? I believe I heard you say that, you know, you have so many pythiums there that the phosphites might not be taking out certain ones and the ones that you're finding are pretty severe, are ones that the phosphites are missing. Am I right about that? And are you concerned about the chronic use of phosphites? I'm not concerned about it. The initial discovery with, you know, Pythium Batch goes back again to 2005. We're just now getting ready to, like, wrap that up and publish it. You know, initially it looked like the phosphonates, phosphites, just were not suppressing these organisms um, naturally. And, And what I mean by that is there's no resistance issue in terms of building up against it. It was just that there's some weak Pythium species, and in our case, it's Aristosporum and Aranomanes, the weak pathogens that just don't seem to be naturally controlled by the phosphates. Whereas, like Pythium dermatum, like you can get away with spraying Signature or any of the phosphates and controlling that. And initially, we saw that anybody that had this Pythium patch problem, it was everybody that relied heavily on the phosphates to control Pythium, and this thing was breaking through. And as soon as we sprayed banal or subdue or Segway or one of the more traditional pythium fungicides, it cleaned it up right away. So I was like, okay, well, maybe there's an issue where these pathogens aren't being controlled by what people are using, but as soon as we introduce something that's able to control a random pythium, then it all goes away. Mm-hmm. But some of the work that Travis did, he did some petri plate work, and what we were seeing in the field, at least in the lab um, under cultured conditions, is not playing out the way that I thought it was. So it's still a, an open question, I guess I would say on that. I would just warn people if they're going to use the phosphites, that's great for certain diseases, but it's not going to hold up against everything. Some of the traditional pythiums are still needed uh, when, the, when the weather gets really bad and you get into the heat of that summer. I wouldn't be relying on, on phosphites exclusively, but I don't know about resistance. I don't know if that's going to be the issue or not. I think it's just they don't work on certain species. And there's a lot of them there, and I think it was Lee Butler that I was talking to on the show a couple of episodes ago last year. And he said, you know, when he talks to ecologists, it's sort of good that there's a lot of pythiums out there because then you're not continually pounding the same species, maybe that it would become resistant. So the diversity sometimes could be a strength. What do you think? Yeah, and I think that that was my original hypothesis when we first found this thing is that we're clearing out all the aggressive pythiums with signature or phosphites and not touching the less aggressive ones, the weak ones, right? Well, if you've wiped out all these other pythiums and you're left with only a handful, maybe those other pythiums were holding them back by providing some competition that we just eliminated. So that was the original hypothesis. 
I still feel that way, but I just haven't been able to prove it. But yeah, I think that there's something to it from an ecological standpoint about that competition in the soil and in the plant system. Maybe we don't want to wipe out 12 out of the 14 species that are there and let the two that used to be weak become mm-hmm. more problematic. Yeah. So I would be remiss if I had a conversation with you and we didn't talk about sort of the stuff you've done in the social sphere, right? I mean, obviously, you get particular acclaim from me for talking about your cancer diagnosis and, you know, getting your nut removed. This was about as brave (laughs) as it can get. And I remember seeing you. It was right around the U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills. But I want to talk more broadly about, you know, looking back on it over a decade or more of doing it, what's it meant? What, What do you think kind of an impact it's had on your career? Yeah, you know, it's weird thinking about it because if I think about, like, being open and honest, like it was always my fault to everybody. Like I just said what was ever on my mind. Right. And then all of a sudden you open <laughs> well, I don't up know anything social about media. <laughs> right. But you open up social media and then all of a sudden that becomes a platform where you, you're not only telling the two people sitting in the bar with you or you and I sitting around having a drink, you're telling a thousand people or 10,000 people something. So, you know, it was an experiment. You had to struggle through it to learn what to do and what not to do. And, and sometimes it got me into trouble, but I think, you know, looking back at it and and how I see people using things like Twitter now, like, I just think social media has been a great way to connect people and get answers to questions, but also to kind of pull people together and get to know people outside of, you know, the face-to-face interaction, Um, which the pandemic aside, we got to know each other before we even showed up to a conference just based on conversing with them on social media. And so... It's good. It's got a lot of problems. I mean, we see the negatives of it when you, you know, if you get deep into it now, it's, you know, its impact on young kids and, yeah. and body perception and things like that. I mean, there's a lot of negatives to it, but, you know, as a whole, from a business standpoint, it's been good. And for me, I give a lot of credit to Pat Jones, who just happened to stick me on the cover of Golf Course Industry. I really do think that that helped. It was like, well, the cart before the horse, right? I think he actually made it look like I was a social media maverick when, in fact, he kind of made me that by putting me on the cover of that. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know what came first, but I'm I'm guessing that cover came before <laughs> me being an expert. But all of a sudden, I had departments and colleges and other associations asking me to come talk about Twitter. I mean, I think about all the talks I gave on social media back when it was a, a black box and nobody knew it. And now it's like, there'd be no chance I'd be going to give a talk on those things because everybody's even more advanced than me on on the platform. Well, and what I would add to what you're saying there is it's become part of my learning network. Yeah, I'm with you on the dark side of it and the data's not encouraging that it plays on our worst human nature sometimes. I stayed at Twitter. In fact, I got on Instagram once for like three weeks and it sort of mesmerized me. Next thing I knew, I bought a shirt that didn't fit me. And I'm like, okay, I got to get rid of this thing. So I deleted it. I know how it plays on people, but at the same time, I've learned a lot from it. And I'm wondering, is that a way to promote good things? Or do you see it also working to promote things that, well, we can just sell more of this if we say this about it. What's your thoughts about how it can influence the way some guys incorporate it into their decision making? Well, you know, I think the one thing about social media, positive and negative, is if you ever post something that says, you know, this is going to solve all your problems, you got 12 people in the comments telling you how you're fooled. Reviewing the 2021 growing season reveals the many weaknesses that exist on golf course putting greens regarding drainage and firmness. Thankfully, solutions such as Dryject Sand Injection Services increases infiltration and this helps alleviate poor drainage and reduces compaction by top dressing, aerating, and mending in one pass. 
Dryject Services keeps the water flowing through your profile and plenty of air in the root zone. Contact your local Dryject Service representative or visit dryject.com. If you ever post something that says, you know, this is going to solve all your problems, you got 12 people in the comments telling you how you're full of it. And, and so it's, it's almost like a checks and balances with some people trying to sell too much if it worked or didn't work. But certainly it could influence people's decisions on what they're trying and buying. But what I find is that people have the conversation there and they don't just go on there and say, what can I do? And then buy the stuff. They're like, well, how did it work? What happened? And call me. I'll talk to you about my experience with it. So I think it's definitely a good education thing and a good platform for like, expanding your, your knowledge in the business. So your health is good, and how, how much have things changed in the so many years since I've seen you and that happened? Yeah, health is good. I think I had my three-and-a-half-year check last month, and I'm clear. I, I didn't grow a second nut back. It's still gone, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but no, it's good. I mean, I have no problems. Everything seems to be pretty good, so I think now it's just, you know, those regular checkups. You know, I've got a history of cancer in my family. On my mom's side, she's had cancer four times. Oh, she's like gosh. a powerhouse. She's beat breast cancer twice, oh, kidney gosh, cancer recently, skin <laughs> cancer. I mean, it's, it's nuts, like, the strength of her to get through it. I'm like the big wuss. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna probably die, <laughs> you know? So what about the pandemic and the traveling fiend you are? You know, I like to travel, John, but I think you put me to shame. You must really be like the George Clooney in Up in the Air uh, of the Turfgrass. Uh, me too. Uh, of the Turfgrass uh, professor industry that we have here. How's the traveling been and do you miss it as much as I do? I miss it. It was weird. 2020, when the pandemic hit, I was set to go to Europe, South Africa, and all these places, and it all ended. And I was like, you know what? This is kind of a nice break of not traveling. Like, we were totally hunkered down, you know, first year of the pandemic. But last summer, things started opening up. We got restrictions lifted on being able to travel. So I did get out and visit all my students, except one who was in in Europe. And my wife and I took a a vacation. We went, you know, when things slowed down in the summer, we kind of drove around by ourselves through the Midwest. So I got out and traveled a little bit more. I think that the travel, instead of being like excited about jumping on a plane, getting to a spot, visiting, jumping back on a plane, going to the next place, I kind of slowed down a little bit. I said, you know what? I'm not going to rush the trip. I'm not going to sit around doing nothing, but I'm not going to rush it. So I took a little bit of extra time and tried to enjoy myself more. So I'm back to traveling a little bit now. I'm you know, planning on going to GIS next month and, um, you know, if that's still going to happen. <laughs> but I, I think that it's, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how, as travel completely widens back open again, it'll be interesting to see how I, how I react to that because I do miss it and I still feel like I enjoyed it when I did it this year, but I don't feel like I need to go as hard as I did. I, yeah. I enjoyed being home. I enjoyed spending more time with my wife and being not so many days on the road without seeing her. And she traveled a little bit more with me this year. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how I revert back to the old ways or whether I have a balance between that. I do miss Europe and Australia and yeah. stuff. I miss going to places like that. So I hope I get to do that for ITS this year. But we'll see how the travel goes. And the little bit I've done so far this year has been okay. But man, I've had so many flights get canceled oh. in Philadelphia that I can't get back to State College and I'm driving home in a car at midnight. Uh. That makes it not fun. So it needs to get back on track a little bit before I'm willing to just go bounce around 100,000 miles a year like I used to. Yeah. Amen to that. I couldn't agree more. I think it was a wake-up call for a lot of us that were really slaves to the road at times 
And I, I do. I, I think it is a, a healthier attitude to enjoy it a little bit more. You sounds like you're getting old there, uh, Dr. Kaminsky. Uh, you're starting to sound like an old retired guy like me, almost soon to be retired guy like me. Starting to appreciate things, wanting them to slow down a little bit. John, appreciate you taking the time, and I give you plenty of time to get back to your talk in Connecticut. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, Frank, I appreciate it. I'll say this is one last parting thing. I think the more I'm around some of the younger faculty, like I was 15 years ago, the more you start to see that drive and that energy they have, mm-hmm. and also some of the, the wrong attitudes I had back then, right? Like, I wanted to destroy everybody and make everybody's <laughs> program, you know, be not as good as mine, and now I'm like, that's just such a dumb way to look at it. So I've definitely <laughs> matured a little and, and settled down some. Um, I'm still a pain in the butt, and, and that's never going to change, but uh, yeah, I, I look forward to kind of the second half of my career yeah. and maybe seeing how it plays out differently than the first half. You're the best. Well done, John. Appreciate that. Thanks for taking the time. All right, thanks, Frank. Big thanks to my guest today, Professor John Kaminsky. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The Plant Food Company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger, graphic design Nicole Rossi, theme music Tucker Rossi, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.